Welcome to the EmberMap podcast, where we discuss design and development in the world of EmberJS. My name is Sam. I'm Ryan. And today we're joined by special guest, Ollie Griffiths. Hello. <laughs> Welcome, Ollie. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we know you from the Ember NYC meetup, and um, we brought you in today to talk about what you've been working on and also your upcoming broccoli trainings at EmberConf. Yeah. So uh, you have a dry run of those coming up pretty soon. Yeah, so we've got a dry run on Wednesday. Uh, it's at Adapar. Um, the idea is I'm going to make sure I have enough content, <laughs> or too much, I don't know, and either trim it down or pad a lot um, so that I get to the like, rough three-hour mark for EmberConf. Yeah. I always find that like you go in thinking like, oh, I'm an expert and they want me to teach this. So I'm going to come in with like 14 bullet points and yep. then you give your first training and you're like on point three and it's like been <laughs> two and a half hours. And <laughs> yeah, that was basically a slash year. Basically, yeah, exactly what happened. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it as, as slim as possible on the like slide front. Um, there's really only three concepts that I'm trying to cover and then it's just straight into code. And nice. just like let's everybody follow along. And hopefully by the end of it, you'll have like a built JavaScript app, but I'm not giving away any secrets as to what that app might be yet. Nice. <laughs> I found I found last year that doing code was was great. Like yeah. it let it let people interact with each other. We kind of had everyone pair up um, and work on like these exercises, and it was yeah. So like that was a highlight of the training for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I want to get across is that for me, before I knew much about Broccoli JS it seemed very mystical and magical and it was like this scary thing. And it was only since I've started doing the work for EmberConf that I started digging into the internals and realized, yeah, this is really actually quite simple. Like what it does internally is really straightforward, but there's all these magical terms like trees that yeah. get thrown around. You're like, what? what's that? <laughs> did it, you, you had a similar experience, right? I did. Were, yeah. I did. I was just going to say, maybe before we get into it, let's just, uh, for listeners who haven't heard, heard you or met you yet, why don't we just do a quick introduction? So why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of who you are, where you work, how you got an Ember? Sure. Uh, so, hi, my name's Oli. Um, I moved to the US five years ago um, <clears throat> to work for a small digital creative company uh, called uh, Expand the Room. And prior to that, I was in the UK for about six years um, working at a, as a full stack developer at a startup. So it started with just myself and another chap and built up the technology stack there, um, primarily doing backend, but a bit of everything. Um, and that was all back in the like jQuery and just raw CSS days. So things have progressed a lot since then. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to the US and started working on a project for a client of expand the room that I came across uh, Ember.js. Um, actually, right at the end of the development cycle where I basically implemented a really bad version of Ember.js. I think that's a, a lot of people. <laughs> that's how everyone yeah. finds Ember, right? Yeah, it's true. like you implement something and you're like, what have I done? <laughs> and you're like, wait, Yehuda did this. He probably did a much better job. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> I came across and I was like, man, they've literally done everything I tried to do and did it way better. Uh, <laughs> So you're, um, you're pretty big in the PHP community here in New York, uh, we were just talking about before the podcast. Yeah, so I'm actually not a like, front-end developer, which uh, most people are kind of surprised at because I tend to talk more about JavaScript than I do about back-end stuff. Um, but I've been doing yeah, back-end PHP, um, also 
um, client-side iOS for the last 10 years and had my hand in JavaScript. Um, but my day-to-day is, yeah, is back-end. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that is surprising because you were at um, one of our talks recently at Ember NYC, and I just remember you asking a lot of like really insightful questions that that demonstrated that you knew at kind of a deep level like what was going on with some of the problems we were talking about. So, and also, I think the first time I met you, you had rebuilt Tumblr in Ember yeah. <laughs> as like a side project. Yeah, so we had a um, a whole thing at Tumblr a couple of years ago. Um, we have these labs projects, and it was this was born off the back of a um, uh, a hack day which we had at Tumblr. So, at one of my first hack days, I decided a good idea would be to try and rebuild Tumblr in twenty four hours as a single page app. And it turns out that's really hard to do in twenty four hours. <laughs> um, so well, you got bit by a bug, and you had to keep. Yeah, going I was with like, it. "Oh, this is actually really kind of cool. I want to see if we can take this further." So the original intention was just to rebuild the app using the API and not as a separate website. So we kind of have sort of two code bases or a split um, of the code base in some areas where we have to maintain two separate um, stacks. Which I was like, "This doesn't make sense. Let's try and build a web client that." works off the API, the same as our mobile clients do. I see. So that was the original intention. Um, <clears throat> we then went through building out a Ember version of Tumblr um, as a proof of concept and got it to the point where I was able to persuade other people at Tumblr, <clears throat> this, is, this is something we should be doing. And um, off the back of that, they have now, they're now doing a full rewrite of the Tumblr application in React um, as the platform that they're using. So achieved the nice. goal, which was power everything off the API, um, slightly different details. Yeah, right. So that's cool. And it sounds like maybe you had some native experience. And I was curious how much of that carried over to doing this kind of, I guess, you know, fat client architecture, whether it's with Ember or, you know, iOS apps. Yeah, so the interesting thing about doing both backend and frontend is that you backend typically with stateless languages like PHP, Ruby, and so on. You don't have to think about state or memory management or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And once you start delving into the front-end world, especially with something like Ember, you have a stateful application. So you have to start thinking about memory management and doing things on main threads and so on and so forth, which just aren't even concepts to a backend engineer. They get a hard refresh every time. Exactly. <laughs> but the flip side of that is a lot of backend languages have a very structured like MVC structure. So for me, coming from backend PHP to Ember, I could pick it up and I was like, oh, this is really straightforward. Like that when I originally started with Ember, it was all controllers and views and components were becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. So to pick that up initially was like, oh, this is this makes sense. It's MVC. It's super easy to pick up. And that makes sense because it's kind of a throwback from Ruby and so on. So the initial design concepts translate very well. Mm-hmm. And still a lot of the the same semantics apply between the two. There are just different concerns. Right. 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 With the front end, especially with the front-end uh, JavaScript and web front-end, you start having to, having to deal with like asset management and caching and cache invalidation and all that kind of stuff, which you just don't generally have to deal with for iOS uh, or Android. You ship, a, you ship a new binary and you hope people download it. Right. So they're, they're, it's interesting. I think each different facet of front-end development comes with its own benefits and drawbacks. Mm-hmm. But you had already been... I feel like one of the most difficult parts of writing, you know, an Ember app or just more generally like a stateful JavaScript app is is state, right? Yep. It's thinking about how how data flows through your app, 
how to refresh it when it gets stale. Yep. And so those concepts, maybe those higher level concepts carried over, or would you say? Uh, yeah, I would say those, those things are do generally carry over. Um, it's when you start getting down into the weeds when, say, you're dealing with Ember Data that things mm-hmm. massively change. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, Ember Data as a, a data store has some similarities with like core data in iOS. So they're, like, there are similar patterns even there. Um, so Cool. Yeah. So uh, getting back to Broccoli, um, yeah, we were talking about how it's very, uh, it can seem very opaque from the outside. Um, indecipherable yeah until you kind of peel back the layers um and yeah we had a broccoli course come out on ember map last year and i did a lot of research for that i mean just speaking with folks getting my hands dirty writing some plugins and it's true like there's a lot of terminology and um some abstractions that make it a little hard to waver through but once you once you kind of get there it's very reasonable it's very straightforward actually it, it almost feels like um a functional approach to the file system. Yeah. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about kind of what you've learned, like what your approach has been. So I can probably try and distill broccoli down into as simple a term, simple, the simplistic terms as possible, is that broccoli is a, a state management machine for the file system for transformations of files from an input to an output. And that's essentially all a build pipeline is. You have a bunch of inputs, you do stuff to those files, and you have a bunch of out. But you have a single output, um, an output directory where you write your CSS, your JavaScript, your HTML, your images, etc. And all you're trying to do is take those input files, filter them, pass them, do stuff to them, and write them out. And what mm-hmm. Broccoli internally does is just hook up the pieces to be able to go from a, each single state to another. So you may select your JavaScript files, you then may process them through uh, ESLint, you then may process them through Babel, you then may concatenate them together using uh, some concatenation, or you may use some kind of bundler like Rollup, and out the end comes a JavaScript file. Mm-hmm. And each one of those individual states is managed by Broccoli, and so the individual plugins just deal with, I have some files that are coming in, I do stuff to them, and I write them to an output directory. That's literally all it does. Mm-hmm. And it has some other stuff around it, like the CLI and um, the Express server to you know, um, be able to render your files within the browser, etc. But on the face of it, that's kind of all it does. So it's actually really simple. But there's all these terms that get thrown around like trees mm-hmm. that you see them and you're like, I have no idea what this means and how it does all this stuff connect together. And I think one of the biggest issues with Ember is that because a lot of that is abstracted away behind the add-on system, when there is a problem, it's very difficult for you to try and track down where that problem exists. Um, and because you're not managing the full dependency graph of A goes to B, goes to C, goes to D, and gets written to the output, then when there is a problem, trying tracking down where that is and visualizing the, the, the build graph, I suppose, is kind of tough. Right. It's Whereas if like, you've been forced to do it, like it, with like Webpack, for mm-hmm. example, because you have been forced to set it up, when there is a problem, it's easier for you to understand where that problem is. So it's like... Right. You know, like where to hook in and stuff, like where to start debugging. Yeah. Like if you can see in the output trace, oh, there was an error in Babel. Cool. I can see by looking at my configuration where I'm using Babel. Um, when in Ember, 
it's a plugin that's hooked in somewhere to some hook that you have no concept of. Yeah, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, you install Ember CLI Font Awesome, yep, and you have, you know, who knows? You have font files that are lo- put into your app bundle and loaded and minified. You don't even know what's yep. happening. It just works. Or you know, Ember SVG jar mm-hmm. that takes an SVG and inlines it, and I mean that's crazy. But like, yep. you don't have to know anything about that. So when it doesn't leak. It's great. Yep. But if it does, then most <laughs> abstractions do from time to time that aren't perfect abstractions. Yep. Um, you do have to kind of dig in. So um, you were just talking about how, um, you know, most of us have touched broccoli at some level, like at some point, even lightly. But, um, you know, training, running training and teaching it really forces you to understand it. And you were just yeah, telling me sure. how <laughs> you basically have been going through some of the source code. Yeah, um, so the folks that make uh, Broccoli have done a great job um, in the last few months of converting the core Broccoli source code into like ES6 classes, mm-hmm. which for me personally makes them much easier to understand. I think it's like for, so I much think easier to grow. Speak for everyone. No like <laughs> prototype dot whatever. Yeah. Like I don't have to read a file and try and like mentally build a model in my head of what the class is. It's right there in front of me. Right. Um, so it's been a lot easier to go through that and understand what the concepts are. Um, There are still some abstract concepts that you have to understand, but in Broccoli, there's really only two, um, and it's nodes and plugins, and everything is built up off that. And nodes are basically an abstract uh, representation of a file or a set of files, Mm -hmm. um, and a plugin is the thing that you would interact with as a consumer of that API. So I want to use the Broccoli transpiler plugin or I want to use the SAS compiler plugin, whatever those, mm-hmm. those are the things that actually do the transformations. And that's, that's kind of it. And a node is the same thing as a tree? So <laughs> yes, but I kind of want to get that redefined. Yeah. So they, the terms are used interchangeably. Um, a node basically has n number of inputs, which are input directories. Mm-hmm and one output directory. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it like a single sort of tree, like mm-hmm. one stalk and then some inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, a node can be a single input or it can have multiple inputs. So okay. something like broccoli merge trees, its intention it's an is it's taking nodes. multiple nodes mm-hmm. and it's gonna merge them all into a single output directory. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you reference your input directory, like app, that would be a single node, that would be a node with a single input. Like it, you can't have multiple sources for a single um, input node. Um, in I think my I remember mind, Joe List talking about this as well and yeah. feeling like tree was maybe confusing or unnecessarily kind yeah. of um, just like a, a kind of an abstraction that was like, it's, just, it's a node. It's almost like a file system node. It's a node. And I think the, the, the thing with a node is uh, you're starting, you're now going into sort of like graph theory a little bit. Um, and broccoli, the tree aspect of broccoli makes sense when you start thinking about your entire build pipeline. Yeah. You ultimately have a single output directory. Yeah. And this is actually how broccoli works. Like one, in your Brock file, when you return your final thing as your module export, whatever that is, it starts from there and it spiders up the tree to explore everything and build up all of the input nodes of all of your build pipeline until it gets to the top, which are essentially your source nodes, mm-hmm. your source input directories, sets up file watchers for them. Then when you change any files, it builds from top down to the bottom. So it actually explores 
from the output, the final output directory up to everything. Really? Oh, and in I my mind, that. that's a tree. Like that makes sense. You've got different nodes of the tree, which are different branches, and off those branches come other branches and, and so on. Um, so in my mind, that's what a, the, the idea of a tree in Broccoli kind of should be. It's the combination of both nodes and plugins. So once you take the set of all plugins that you're running your pipeline through, feed in the input nodes, yep. and you end up with that Broccoli program that's ready to kind of build and rebuild, yep. you could think of that whole thing as a tree. Exactly. Because that's basically what it looks like. Yep. That's interesting. I, I have a follow-up question. So. Earlier last year when we were talking with um, Steph and Robert about um, the concat part of Ember CLI's build, um, they talked about how that they wanted to work on that. And right now they kept saying it was a naive concat. So the idea being you do all your processing and then you need to kind of bring things together. Mm -hmm. You know, now we have something like Rollup, which is more intelligent. But one of the hard parts with the naive concat is that it took all these modules and put it in a final thing. And it was hard to know where the pieces came from. Right. Because if you knew where the pieces came from, you'd be able to better um, like cache and validate certain parts that needed to be rebuilt. Or um, there was a specific problem that um, couldn't be solved with Broccoli, but um, I can't remember what it is right now. But basically, it sounds like Broccoli does know where everything comes from. Yes. It could build a graph of the dependencies. Uh, sort of. Uh it only knows about files. Okay. So it wouldn't be able to do things that like Rollup does, which is actually introspect the I code see. itself. That's what it was. It or just knows. You import a file in a JavaScript file or a CSS module in a SAS file. Yeah. So it doesn't know about the contents of files. It just knows about the files themselves. And even then, uh, it doesn't know internally what a plugin is doing. You could shell out to a bash script in a Broccoli plugin if you so chose to do so. And so all it knows is, I provided these files and I was and out at the plugin emits files to a directory. That's kind of all it knows. It couldn't say, right. You so the idea is if any of those input files change, it basically has to run the whole process. Yeah, and so certain plugins have, um, there's mm. a Broccoli um, uh, plugin that you can extend from that will add caching support to your plugin. So you can say, okay, if none of the input files change, then don't return run. Return the cache. Yeah, return, return the previous output state, essentially. The last time I did a build, um, return that because my inputs haven't changed. Um, but, but you if have you to want to get more that. granular and you have like a JavaScript file that imported like 10 JavaScript files, yep. and you could do something intelligent where only one of them changed, and you, could, you wouldn't have to worry about the other ones, you can't really do that. Or you, you would just have to do it manually. Broccoli doesn't know how to do any of that. No idea, you. yeah. Interesting. So I think that's exactly what they were talking about. And I think there was some talk about if you could write plugins that were more intelligent about things like ES6 imports, static imports in ES6, or SAS imports yep. in SAS, then you could optimize a lot of the builds. Yeah, um, you could certainly. So in the case of SAS, for example, uh, if you had a the equivalent of something like Broccoli, but for SAS specifically, mm. then you could invalidate certain mm -hmm. import pathways and you wouldn't need to rebuild necessarily everything. You wouldn't need to recompile everything. Right. Um, but in term, and in terms of JavaScript, yeah, you could do that. But honestly, I, I would you use Rollup. Right. Like, roll that's up. what it's designed, exactly what it's designed for. Right. So what is Rollup? What is Rollup there? What is where the. So Rollup is a JavaScript bundler that um, the initial release does two things. It does dead code elimination and it does tree shaking. So dead code elimination is 
if a section of code can guarantee to not be used, like if you did if false and put something inside that, that branch, that can just be removed. It knows, it statically analyzes it, and it knows we can delete this code. We don't even need to ship those oh, bytes. Oh, Rollup does that in a single file? Even. In a single file. Oh, cool. Um, I believe. Uh, it'll also do, if you import code from a, another module, and you don't use that module, so if you do import foo from bar, if you import that and don't and use that variable, it'll just strip that out. I may be wrong about that branching logic, but I'll I'll check on that. Something about dead yeah. code elimination. Yeah, so if you import something and you don't use it, it can get rid of that. Um, tree and shaking. then it takes up all the modules and just... Yeah, so then it, it can so it can work on um, several output modes. Um, one of them is the ability to be able to inline within the current scope. So if you have an entry file and that says import foo from bar and foo is a string in the file bar, it just inlines that oh, nice. as... In, uh, foo equals bar. Um, same goes for uh, importing objects and, and anything that can be anything that it knows. This doesn't need to be evaluated at runtime. I can just import ah. it um, where it is. Even functions, I, I believe, can also be imported. And basically, it'll work out what like the common pathway is of the, all the modules that need those things, and it'll hoist that stuff up to a common context so that those those things have access to those variables and objects and whatever. Cool. I've heard I've heard a lot of high praise about Rollup from from folks on the, the Ember core team. Ember yeah, it seems teams. really cool. Um, I think I, if it was around a couple of years earlier, you know, <laughs> I, I think it will play it will continue to play a larger role in Ember CLI's pipeline. Yep. And I think what it does, it's limited to basically ES6 static imports, yes, right? That like the one of the caveats is it's using ES6 because it's a specific standard for JavaScript right. to define how dependencies are declared. Right. And uh, the, the documentation site says, you, we decided not to use CommonJS and AMD and so on right. because those uh, A, aren't official standards and B, have various quirks that mean we can't do this. And everybody is moving towards ES6 anyway, so we might as well use yeah, that. I was going to say, as an Ember developer, that yeah. sounds, sounds great. Right. Yeah, so Especially that, if it unlocks static analysis that you don't get with like runtime require or whatever, which I know you can do yeah. with common. Things. So they're working on um, two, there's two experimental ad um, additions to um, Rollup. Uh, they are working on code splitting. So much like um, what Webpack does, where you can de define multiple entry points. Ah. And it'll say, okay, for these different entry points, what are all the common modules that are used between all those things and write them out to a shared or common JS. Um, and then each of the individual entry files, it'll just write out their individual builds. So that could then be used by something like Ember Engines to say, okay, well, we're gonna write out our equivalent of like a vendor file or a, our common, our main.js, which is all the common modules. And then each individual route could be written out to a separate JavaScript file for just the stuff that's included within those Within those routes, interesting. That's awesome. That I mean, we, cool. we we work on an app now where it's we have like the front end and then the admin area. Mm -hmm. It's all one app. It doesn't need to be yep separated. But, but we just do it because it's the easiest thing to do today. Right. Um, so it'd be awesome to have a good code splitting story. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's becoming more and more required. Yeah. By people as 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 people start moving more and more of their apps yeah. to the front end. It's it's only going to become a, a standard practice at some point. You want to render that homepage super fast, and you don't want it to pull in. Why ship stuff you don't need? Four megs of JavaScript. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
That's interesting. I mean, you know, it just makes me think of like a lot of the fast boot stuff we've been talking about because basically if you have a homepage that's, you know, only this big and it needs to be fast, but it brings along four megs of JavaScript with it. Yeah. And one solution is to figure out code splitting. Another is to, to do caching in a, in a way that makes it so that you don't really, it doesn't matter. But I guess ideally, it still matters after, your first it still, page experience. It still matters so. because they're still downloading it, even if they get yeah. the render initially. Yeah. Um, if you could do it really quick. And basically, yeah, you have an entire admin section that no end user needs to see ever. Yeah. Why ever give it to them? It would, doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can do some of that stuff with engines right now, but there's only certain things that you can split off into their own separate app. Like, for example, Ember Data models have to exist globally. globally. Um, I see. Or services. Yeah. Interesting. So one of the thing, one of the sort of drawbacks of Ember is because it has a resolver, there uh -huh. are certain things that a static analysis cannot uh -huh. deal with at build time and cannot know about. Well, my question was going to be uh, along those lines is, of course, in Ember, we don't just have JavaScript files. Yep. We have handlebars templates. Yeah. Which are, like you said, I mean, notoriously difficult to statically analyze because even for the resolver, just built for it, you know, you see curly, curly foo. Yeah, I think we're going to, I think the way that uh, Ember is evolving with the removal of, um, there's an RFC for using this dot foo to refer to properties on the component uh -huh. um, and remove this sort of fuzzy fallback where it goes, uh, is it on the component? If it's mm -hmm. not there, is it a helper? If it's not there, etc. Um, so you can actually look at a template and say, here's our its dependencies. Yeah. That would be yeah. awesome. I mean, both um, for the static analysis side and for your understanding as a developer. Yeah, understanding and, and also tooling. You'll be able to eventually at some point command click on that and it will take you to the definition. Now that would be cool. So there's a, there's a lot of things that can be done once you can be uh, assured of what things are right. in your code. And yeah, we can analyze handlebars templates. They can, they can be converted to an abstract syntax tree that are already parsers that do that. And that's essentially all that Rollup is doing is it's taking this tree structure that represents mm. your code and analyzing it and working out and only basically looking at like import statements, for example, and going, oh, well, this isn't used, so get rid of it or inline it or whatever it might be. Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like we need a Rollup for handlebars. Yeah, it'll be doable. And then you could just throw that into a Broccoli plugin and then boom, you're good to yeah. go. <laughs> as, as, so long as once we get to the point where double curly something means one thing. Yeah. You could We're in a much better spot. Yeah, you're in a much better spot. Yep. Because otherwise you can't... If you can know it at build time, you can make determinations about that. If in any way it can be affected at runtime, then you can't do anything at build time with it. I see. So you potentially could write something today, even though ambiguity exists within the template. You could write something that says, okay, I see curly curly foo in the template. Um, let's say, get rid of the property case. Yep. Let's say I'm going to look first for a helper. There's no helper called foo. Then I'm going to look for a component. Yeah, foo. you and could I can say, okay, I know it's a component. You could use the runtime resolver at build time mm. to determine some of these things. Clever. But if that runtime resolver can be affected at runtime, like if that if that was that thing that's being resolved could change at runtime, then you're out of luck. You're out of luck. Like for example, the, the component helper, for example, uh, it uh, doesn't know what it what the value is until the data is provided at runtime. So it could be component A or it could be component B. Yep. So there's no way at that point to statically analyze that and determine like, am I passing the correct properties to this component? Because the whole point of it is it's kind of left up to runtime.
Yep. Um, so there'll be things that can be done and things that can't be done, and the stuff that can't be done will end up in common. So it should the common JS file. So it should just continue to work. It just may not be necessarily as efficient as it might be able to be. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard I've heard folks mention the component helper with like, oh, we can't do this this tree shaking or or eliminating code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you can look at it though, and like. When you use a component helper, there's usually only like a small set of components yep. you plan to plug in there. Maybe. So you I'm wondering how eager developers. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not going to be plugging in all of your components <laughs> in there. I mean, you could. <laughs> you could, but you're not. Hopefully, so, hopefully you're not. I mean, I'm not. I know I'm not. <laughs> I just don't know about other developers. I think the times where we use it, it's like there's like four or five components. Right. Yeah. So you could just whitelist all those. Right. Right. So you these could are always. I know I'm going to need them. Yeah. They're used by this template. These are like pluggable components. For yeah. Yeah. So what's um, what I found really interesting is uh, I've worked on the React app that Tumblr is working on, and the experience of working in TypeScript um, with the React application with they we're using TypeScript and prop types for both build and runtime validation of, of your dependency graph and data, and using those two things together uh, along with React. It is really, really nice. Like the developer ergonomics mm. are awesome. You can command click on anything and it takes you to the definition. Wow. And it's like coming from Emberland, it's like, wow, this is like a like real programming API. Yeah. Um, and then you come back to Ember and you're like, mm, like there's magic here and it's super powerful, but at the end of the day you wanna you're gonna have to you're gonna have to know what this where this thing is. Yeah. You're gonna have to open this component. And I think that's one of the one of the biggest uh, blockers for Ember is that there there is a certain amount of tribal knowledge that you just have to know about yeah. how certain things work in order to be able to look at a template and go, I know exactly what's happening here. Yeah. Um, and the ability to be able to define everything statically and make yeah. sure everything is typed and so on, A, not only is great from a developer ergonomics perspective that you can command click on stuff and find the definition very easily, but also it gives you inline in your editor Warnings when you pass the wrong right. thing into the wrong component. You don't have to wait until you happen to hit that in the in yeah. Chrome, in Chrome. You don't. Yeah, exactly. You're either hoping that at build time you don't have a failure with Ember, or realistically, most of the time it's going to be a runtime issue with those kind of things because there's just no way to know that like you can't. You can't even define on a component what the properties are. Yeah. Well, you do it, property name colon null. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. Right. But, it, but you know, there's no, absolutely. There's no ergonomics absolutely. for that. It's right. left entirely up to you. Entirely up to you, yep. So there's no way to do... that Because there's no standard, there's no standard way of doing um, static analysis and error highlighting and so on on that. Yeah. This actually happened to me like two weeks ago. I was working with a component that took a model. And this component was all over our code base. Um, and I went in and I modified that component to do some stuff and like did insert element. And then like half our test suite started failing. Right. And it turns out that like half of the code base was passing a promise into the model, into the component. And the other half was passing in a model. And it's like, I, I had no idea. If you asked me what this component was taking, I would have, I would have told you it's taking a model. Yep. And I, I wish I had something that at build time or at runtime could, could give me that warning that Hey, you're, you know, you think you're using a model, but you're not really. Yeah. But then you wouldn't have an opportunity to rage tweet about it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And then rage podcast about it. Right, is exactly. That, exactly that yeah. well, then, then you would just do a tweet about union types and say, <laughs> yeah. oh, I just found this awesome feature in TypeScript. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, like, you have a lot of experience across a lot of different platforms, communities, technologies. You know, this 
we've talked a lot about this kind of static analysis stuff. I mean, it's really like a theme of the last year, I think, in yep. front-end JavaScript land. And it took the community a long time to figure out, you know, how to do static imports. Yep. Um, and we are getting, um, you know, more widespread adoption for things like um, TypeScript and Flow. Is it right? Flow yep. is the annotation type annotation That's the from Facebook, Facebook version. So I was just going to curious. I'm kind of curious to your thoughts on do you, how it compares in JavaScript to other technology and ecosystems that you've been part of. Do you see it as like a maturity thing or do you see it as like we were here on the pendulum of like dynamic and then we're like swinging back, but like it's going to course correct again. And is this just like, is it going to keep going like this or is this really the the new stuff that we're getting? Is it really a a truly better way to develop and write software? I feel like there are always going to be people who will say that static analysis is for lazy developers and you should know what your code is doing. I is that really that, an argument? That I, say? I've, I've heard that. Like, if you don't know what you're passing into your code, then you are a bad developer, and that's just <laughs> well, okay, I can go. straight, <laughs> straight out. Right. I, by the way, I can totally see this. Being <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I, I take the uh, approach that you want to catch as much stuff before you ship to production as possible. This is why we write tests, and static analysis is just a different kind of test. It's just a test that's run for you by your tooling rather than you having to manually write it. So why wouldn't you want that? Right. Um, and what's interesting is the, the PHP community has only recently even had the ability to put types within the language. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so since PHP 7, which was released uh, about two years ago now, um, they introduced full type, the full um, scalar type checking um, across the language. They'd only been a very small subset of things that you could type check um, within the language itself. And it, the adoption uh, has been great. People really like it. Because you can check, at, even just as you're writing the code, if you're using an IDE, it'll warn you immediately if you're doing the wrong thing. That's amazing. Um, that is amazing. That's great. Um, unfortunately, because PHP is uncompiled um, by its kind of nature, it's a scripting language, you can still write something and ship it to production, but you can add tooling around that to make sure that when you check the files, you can statically analyze uh-huh. them and, and ensure that you are doing the right things, the things you expect yourself to be doing. Um, so I've set up a static analysis tool for PHP at Tumblr that comments on your pull request if you, or fails the pull request if you passing the wrong thing around and so on. So it's not as strong as getting a build that literally doesn't work. Yeah. Because you can always throw that PHP script on a server. Yeah, it's, a, it's an uncompiled yeah. language. Yeah. Well, it's mostly uncompiled. It's not a ahead of time compilation. It's runtime compilation. So you can still fail at runtime, but that's the whole point. That's what we're trying to not have. It's right. runtime failures. Interesting. So. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I really don't have a lot of experience in... Um, I guess you'd say that ahead, I guess, I mean, really, JavaScript and Ember CLI and kind of the modern modern tools around JavaScript and front-end development are my main introduction to ahead of time yep. anything. And it, it is great. You know, it is great when you use an add-on that um, you install and you use it the wrong way and you just get a build error in your yep. terminal <clears> instead <throat> of waiting for a reload, clicking on the link and then seeing what happens. Yeah, and not um, only that, but just like hoping that you've, Triggered the same, the, all the scenarios in the browser that you expect that right. thing to be doing. Like it, the the old school way, which was like save a file and drag and drop via FTP right. and 
cross your fingers right, that it does right. what you think it's going to do. It's a long feedback uh, loop. Yeah, it's, a, it's and, a long and dangerous feedback loop. Yes, and I find myself wanting it even earlier and earlier. So, you know, I install an add-on and then it tells me, here's how you configure it, open up uh, Ember CLI build or um, config environment, add this key and then set this option. It's like even at that step, I want to know if, did I spell something wrong? I mean, it's yeah. just a string and an object. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you use the wrong one or an object that's un- a string that's unsupported, you have no feedback. Yep. I mean, now I notice that Ember CLI, if you run like Ember serve dash dash path, um, it'll say like path is not supported, you know, because it was output path or something like oh, that. Oh, right, right. So it's like, I feel like these, these stronger types checking, static typing things are making their way more and more throughout the ecosystem, throughout our tooling. And I think it's great. Yep. I mean, from my perspective, there's very little downside. I guess the argument that I've heard comes from folks who have been like jaded from other tools and ecosystems where you kind of go crazy and and you annotate everything. And also because abstractions are so hard to get right, maybe, maybe types and annotations can lock you into things that are harder to change later. Yeah, that's absolutely a thing. Um, There is a, uh, an acronym that I forget what it is now, but essentially it's uh, the part of the solid principles. And one of those determines, I forget, always forget which one it is, determines um, inheritance and abstractions. <clears throat> and essentially the idea is that, uh, it's the substitution principle. So the S in solid. It, it, yeah, uh, yes. So the, if a, you have a, a function foo and accepts a, an interface of A, and I subclass that and I change that interface to B. Well, anything which I could have originally passed that original class uh, of foo yeah. to. List called substitution. Yeah, the list L, called substitution. I think that's S the is, one. Um, single, single responsibility. responsibility, right. Yeah. So, yeah, it, and, it, and it breaks this idea of like typing with an interface that's something that you could override in a subclass. If I can pass the original class foo, as a dependency to something else, and that has a method called A on it, mm-hmm. and that method I can pass some other dependency. Mm-hmm. If I subclass that and I can change that dependency, that change that method signature to accept some other thing, then it's going to break when I try and pass something that's not what I expect to it. And Even so though you, it would have worked if you didn't have, the, if I didn't have the type the in, typing, it it well, it would have worked. It wouldn't have failed at runtime. Uh, or build time or whatever your language is doing. Um, And so, yeah, you can, you can kind of chain yourself in a little bit, Mm -hmm. but if you're doing that, then probably your abstractions are wrong. Mm -hmm. If you can't do what you're trying to do, it's not, it's not really the typing that's causing you a problem. It's probably the abstraction. Yeah, so it's very easy. It's very easy to blame. And then overloading with a different interface. Yeah, it seems like it's very easy to blame the typing as the problem rather than the architecture. Does the typing nudge you towards certain kinds of architectures that it wouldn't if you didn't have those? Um, I don't know. If you had the flexibility, I guess we're talking about duct typing, right? Where you have a component that displays a list item and all it needs is a title property. So I can pass in a series, I can pass in a video, I can pass in a podcast. All those things have title properties. Mm -hmm. And so my list item component will work with them. So, yeah. So in that scenario, what you would want to do is have the concept of an interface Mm -hmm. and each one of those components implements that same interface that has a title property or Mm -hmm. a get title method. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter which subclass of those you pass in, it'll still work because it's always expecting that, uh, that interface and they all conform to that. 
So you can say my thing is like、uh, summaryable, and it means it has a title and a summary and a description. Yep. And my video is summaryable, and my podcast is, and my series is. Yep. And now I have the the, the feed time at、uh, the feedback at build time. Yep. That if I pass in a video into this component, it's going to it's going to say okay. Yep. But if I try to pass a blog post in, I'm actually going to get. Some like a lint error. Basically,、yep. I would be able、yep. to have something in my Atom editor that says you're not. This only accepts summaryables. Yep, and, and blog post is not summaryable. That's exactly the feedback that、cool. you get with TypeScript, which is awesome. Yeah,、um, I need to. I need to. I need to dive into that. I haven't.、Yeah. <laughs> I haven't taken that one yet. Maybe I'll take. A, I'm I'll sure take there's. A, is there a training session? There is a training session, but、yeah. I think I'm gonna be busy. But、um, maybe I'll ask him for a, a, a runner-up session. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's.、Uh, Chris,、yeah. Chris is running it. Yeah. yeah.、Um, so that's interesting. So you guys use you guys use TypeScript at at work. Yeah. So the new project was TypeScript from the beginning. They evaluated Flow and TypeScript and、uh, bet on TypeScript.、Um, I think partially from a sort of community and adoption basis, partially on the tooling basis, and also that TypeScript is just a super set of JavaScript. Okay. So you're essentially you're still writing JavaScript. Oh, so I do know TypeScript. Yep,、yeah, kind of. <laughs>、um, I'm kidding. <laughs> and then you are adding on typing support on top of it, and essentially all the build ends up doing is kind of just removing the type stuff when it builds out to JavaScript. Oh, okay. So it、that's, can use that at build time and then runtime. It doesn't have that. There are some things where you can write like annotation, annotated stuff out and use things at.、Uh, Runtime, but I don't know if that's a TypeScript feature, or if I'm thinking of Flow or something.、Um, but、I、that's、see. theoretically possible as well. Very cool, interesting. I'll be interested to see how typing in templates pans out. I wonder if other communities like that use templates, like、uh, Vue, are running into some similar things because don't they have lots of kind of string-based, template-based、uh, de- declarations that are not easy, as easily typed as JavaScript files are? I would have thought that whoever wrote the JSX plugin for TypeScript, I assume that exists because JSX is not a native JavaScript syntax, had the same issue. Like we have oh, but something. It, but JSX is typed. You're saying? I mean, well, no, no, JSX isn't. But if you if you create a TSX file,、uh-huh. um, you can use JSX within your TypeScript file.、Ah. So there has to be some parser that's going through and. Not only does like VS Code allow you, it, it knows about it, so you can command click in a VSX template segment, and it will resolve that automatically. So it's possible.、Mm-hmm. It's just got to be done. And so there's there's no reason why like a handlebars file shouldn't be able to be done in exactly the same way. I see. I、yeah. see. It just has to do with the resolver bit. Yeah, but but the resolver bit is the more difficult.、Um, is the more difficult bit. But, but you could you could, you could very easily write a、uh, handlebars. Um, uh, compiler, or sorry, a resolver that would allow you to statically analyze that file and hook stuff up. But it, the more specific you can be about what things are, the easier that will be to make. Cool.、Basically. So who's gonna write this? I'm ready for it. I'm ready to <laughs> click on my in my templates. I, I want think, this. Yeah, I I don't know. You should talk to Chris. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So let, let's bring it back just to your to kind of wrap this up. We kind、yep. of went on a lot of tangents, but that was a fun <laughs> conversation for sure. Um, broccoli is the training you're putting on at EmberConf. Yep, it's next week. Yes, next Monday, nine a.m. Pacific time. 
you're getting a, a trial run in here at, a, at the Ember NYC project night on yep, Wednesday. On Wednesday. So that'll be good. So the folks at EmberConf are going to get real polished version. That's great. Fingers um, crossed. <laughs> and you'll have it done by then too, for sure. Yeah, well, I have to. <laughs> um, but uh, that's going to be mostly uh, understanding kind of some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning, how to think about broccoli. And then are you going to talk about, is it just broccoli? Does it talk about Ember at all? So uh, undecided yet, mm-hmm. but tomorrow we'll determine that. Um, yeah, essentially what I would like you to be able to do having gone through the training session is A, not be terrified about what broccoli is and understand some of the basic concepts. Yep. Um, B, be able to write a standalone broccoli compilation pipeline, uh, simple or complex, however far you want to go with it, but at least understanding I declare a brockfile.js, I put stuff in it, and I run broccoli build and output. Some stuff gets output. Once you understand that, you understand how Ember CLI works, because Ember CLI itself is just a glorified broccoli pipeline, which has internally a bunch of hooks to allow add-ons to be able to hook into the various different parts of the build pipeline. So they built their own kind of spec for what the Ember CLI build pipeline will be, and you can hook in with an add-on at those various steps. Um, Knowing what those add-on, those hooks are, to allow you to make an add-on and hook into the build pipeline. That ideally is where I would like you to be able to get to, um, and hopefully we can do that within three hours. There you go, that's great. Yeah, that would be super valuable. Super valuable, because once I I learned how Broccoli works, just being able to go into, uh, like you were saying, an Ember CLI add-on hook and manipulate some files and have them show up in my app, it's great. You know, that's super powerful because yep. you just have that, you have that underlying tool chain that you can just, you can pull that tool out and, you know, go to work and get something done without relying on the add-on already to exist. Yeah, I think, and I think that's what most Ember developers are looking to be able to do when they're trying to interact with Broccoli. It's mm-hmm. a case of, um, it's not a case of I ins- generally I installed an add-on and I want to debug why right. that's not working, although we'll hopefully be able to do some of that. It's mostly... I have a use case and there isn't an add-on that exists for that. I know how to do this in Webpack or I know how to do this in Gulp or Grunt or whatever, some other build pipeline that you may have used in the past. How do I do that in Ember? Yep. So since learning this, are there things that you're like, shit, I want to go build this now? Like, I want to go build this thing with Broccoli. Uh, Yeah, so I'm actually working on a Broccoli plugin that will allow you to render out a visual representation of your build pipeline. So basically it will render a tree nice. and from, I can see from the output directory and be able to see, okay, here's an or multiple input directories and here's my tree of all, these are all the things that, all the plugins that are, be, that are going through and out comes a directory. And then, so that's step one. That sounds one. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can so, see like where so you can literally see everything, in all the, the add-ons, everything, the order of everything, so that yes. you can see. Oh well, after this step is complete, then this is what happens next. Because that's all it is. It's and this is why I say I think broccoli is a sort of a, a, a file system state abstraction. That it is just dealing with the state of directory one. Do stuff output of that directory gets to be the input of the next plugin. The, that plugin then does stuff to those files and writes stuff to an output, and then the output of that gets hooked up to the input of the next one and so on. So it really is just a tree of um, connections. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the difficulties, especially with ember, is understanding what that tree looks like. Mm -hmm. You just have to kind of like cross your fingers and trust that it's going to work and right. stuff is going to be in the right order and so on. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. When you talk about like the visual output, like I know, I, I, I know the least amount of broccoli in this room, <laughs> but I know things like, I know there's like tree for public, um, tree for app, tree for app. Tree for app. Yeah. So if I could visually see like where those hooks come into play yep. and, and how other things are feeding into that, I think that would help. I, I know that would help me because yep. yep. I just kind of know these things by name. Yeah, absolutely. Not, so essentially what you would see would be an output, your final merge trees, which most broccoli uh, configurations will have the broccoli merge tree at the end because it's got to output everything to a single directory. App.js basically, right? I mean, well, not, not the whole dist directory. Ah, okay. So, so your, fin your final merge is merging your public, your JS, your CSS, your vendor, like all of those things right. are getting merged at the end into an output. So you'll see that at the bottom. And then above that, you'll see all of the inputs to merge trees, which will come from all of those essentially different hooks that you can hook into. Um, so tree for vendor, tree for public, tree for styles, tree for app, etc. Mm -hmm. And then one up from there will be whatever the last plugin that was registered for each one of those trees did, and then so on and so on and so on. That so would be so, so yeah. useful as yeah. both a teaching tool and just like you were saying, demystifying what the heck's going on when I type Ember Surf. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And then what I would like to try and do, and I think it's possible, is after that, to make that interactive so that you can click on any one of those plugins and be able to see the state and the contents of all the files that went in and all the files that came out. That's super cool. Which would really help with debugging, like, mm, why, why am I getting this weird runtime error of something? Why isn't this thing defined? And you could you know, click through and see, oh, oh like that was removed there for some yep. reason by this plugin or yep. whatever. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Super cool. So I think I think it's doable. I just got to work out how. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, the Ember community is super lucky to have you and hack on this cool stuff at night, even though I guess you are, you you moonlight as an Ember developer, even though you're yep. a PHP and React guy by day. Yeah, the irony. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, if folks want to kind of follow your work and get to know more about what you're all about, where should they find you on the web? Uh, just... Twitter is probably the best one, yep. at Ollie Griffiths, O-L-I-G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H-S. Cool. Which will probably be in the video. I didn't probably need to spell that. We'll make sure but, put it uh, in the show notes for sure. Uh, there or GitHub slash exactly the same thing. But most of the stuff on my GitHub is just me messing around with various projects. So. Cool. And you're based here in New York City. Yep. And you come, we see you at the Ember NYC meetup. Yep. So if you're ever so in town, you come, come to say that. hi. Yep. And then come also on. you do the, uh, what's the name of your PHP meetup? Uh, it's the New York PHP meetup. So, easy to remember. <laughs> yeah, very easy. Um, so we'll have our next meetup is on April 2nd. So if you do back-end stuff, um, I am trying to organize something kind of special for the next month. Um, and I don't want to speak ahead uh, yet because nothing is confirmed, but it should be a, a pretty good one nice. for like the development community generally. Very cool. Yeah. Sounds exciting. Yeah. All right, Ali. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks and for having me. Thanks for everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Embermap.com, where you can find high-quality videos and blog posts made specifically for professional Ember developers. Sign up today to access all of our premium content updated weekly.